what do we have here? Looks like another edition of call-in. <clears throat> and looks like I need to clear my throat as well before beginning. How do you like that? Never a dull moment here on call-in, that's for damn sure. I do want to disclose off the bat that you may hear a bit of ambient noise and that is unavoidable at the moment because I'm doing this while driving. And why am I doing it while driving? Well, I don't know. I feel like I could add to the authenticity of the experience. And no, for all you uh, safety scolds, I am not endangering myself or others because this is a hands-free call-on experience. So, unless you want to criminalize the use of hands-free headsets and all the rest, I don't want anybody trying to claim that I'm some kind of menace on the roads. There's uh, lots of tattletales around there on the internet. Maybe not in this call-in room, because presumably if you're making the effort to interchange with me at 10.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, on a Sunday night, you're not going to be inclined to tattle. Um, But then again, there's really nothing to tattle on me for. Uh, That said, it is an on-the-road edition, and so uh, maybe that will bring with it some glorious surprises. I am uh, headed down to D.C. for a couple of engagements. So, uh, I will be forthcoming with details about that once uh, the time is right. Um, anyway, so, uh, today I did an article that really wasn't an article I had been planning so much on doing. It was on Substack, naturally. And uh, it was sort of pursuant to this tongue-in-cheek call based on my the uh, vaunted NATO, but I uh, ended up getting COVID from the NATO summit, so uh, needed a bit of a convalescence period and uh, temporarily delayed my continuation of that series for a short while. But uh, today the latest installment, but it wasn't really wasn't the installment that I really thought I was going to do. If you had asked me, you know, like two or three weeks ago, because you know. Unless it's absolutely necessary, I'm not sure that I would just be in a vacuum inclined to write about a particular journalist who annoys me, Um, because there are too many of them, and there's not enough uh, hours in a day. Uh, But this one was a bit unique, so it wasn't just that this individual had annoyed me, it was that she actually held herself out as a symbol of the most comically corrupt aspects of the contemporary journalism landscape. And so therefore, I wasn't writing about her simply because she annoyed me, which she did, but also because she could be depicted as representative of odious phenomena. And uh, so... That's what I did. This is um, someone named Julia McFarlane. And I had been only really vaguely aware of her prior to 
encountering her at this NATO summit and subsequently. And uh, really, it's really a fascinating person. Not that she is personally at all fascinating. She's not. She appears to be incredibly banal and boring. Uh, she's fascinating just insofar as she is a window into who is exalted within the media industry and who is given accolades and um, buttered up as some kind of excellent uh, spokesperson for the for the craft. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, what what prompted this? And of course, you know, just look at the subject and you can read it. Uh, but what prompted it was that, you know, all of a sudden, kind of out of nowhere, she was not somebody who I was going to focus on uh, in the first place. But all of a sudden, you know, uh, earlier this month, I uh, found myself on the receiving end of a barrage of attacks from this person, Julia. Um, and she had denied because she wanted to uh, allege that I wrongly asserted something about Julia's apparent friend and colleague, uh, Natasha Bertrand of CNN, because in one of my Substack articles uh, earlier in the month, I uh, called attention to the fact that I had witnessed directly, personally, right in front of me, a uh, NATO press aide guiding Natasha Bertrand, now of CNN, but one of the long-standing fabulous of the uh, Russiagate saga. This is what enabled her to ascend throughout the industry. She you know, started a business insider in the Atlantic and all Daily Beast, I think. Uh, now, I landed at CNN as their big correspondent, and she does her on-air uh, stand-up shots and just prattles about this or that, basically just, you know, uh, rehearses talking points that she's provided with, which is, you know, I'm not going to say fine, but not even that remarkable because it's so standard. Uh, but I noticed that, lo and behold, she had been ushered into this privileged seating in the press conference area for the NATO Secretary General. And uh, and I documented this at the time. I noted it. And then I, uh, I put it in an article because, I don't know, it seems like information that people are keen to know about that they wouldn't otherwise know about if I hadn't been there. So that was my logic, I think. And, uh, and all of a sudden, here comes Julia McFarlane, who says that I'm wrong. I made it up. I lied. Something. It never happened. So, I mean, she's clearly, you know, directly impugning, I guess, my veracity, my credibility, and my, just uh, saying that I would just, I don't know, fabricate something outright, which is kind of a grave allegation. You know, as disreputable as I find her, I, I don't think that I would have the temerity to outright accuse her of just making something up unless I had bulletproof evidence. Uh, and she didn't because I know where she was sitting as well in this particular event. Not that I memorized the seating, uh, uh, you know, outline or anything, but I know that she was not an eye shot in order to witness the act, the interaction that I witnessed. So she couldn't possibly have known that it happened. I mean, I saw Natasha guided over to the front row where, where Julia was also seated and they sat together. So unless she had eyes in the back of her head, she wouldn't have been able to see it. But I did. I mean, that's just a fact. So, uh, regardless, and without, you know, checking anything to do with the actual uh, facts here, uh, Julia 
use this as an opportunity to launch a sermon about why it's so important in this, quote, age of misinformation for everybody to make sure that they only follow, quote, accredited, bona fide journalists. Meaning, I was not one such accredited, bona fide journalist, and I shouldn't be followed or shouldn't have any stock put in what I say or write or report or what have you. Um, only should these, quote, accredited, authorized, uh, bona fide journalists uh, ha- have that faith put in them, according to Julia. Now, uh, this was also interesting to me because this is a pretty, you know, serious attempt, at least, to impugn me. Uh, Julia was also talking about how she had, you know, yapped amongst other uh, associates of hers at the summit where they were all, you know, uh, I guess uh, offended that I had been let it in the first place. And it's ironic because, you know, if you followed anything that I wrote or uh, tweeted at the time, you'll know that I was accredited. I was accredited by data. That's how I got it in the first place. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to get in. The idea that mere accreditation, meaning who gets a credential or who doesn't, at any event, really, should be the basis on which you determine whether a journalist has virtue or has uh, is trustworthy. That's a total joke. And it's a total joke in part uh, as shown by the fact that Julia McFarlane herself clearly got accredited to come to that summit. And why does that prove that the accreditation process is a joke, or at least it's not justifiable to use accreditation as a basis on which to determine whether a journalist has worth? Well, it's not just that I think that Julia McFarlane is a poor journalist, right? It's not just that I find work of hers from the past to be lacking in merit, although I do, uh, that alone would not bring me to say that it's a joke for her to have been admitted to an event like this because, you know, I, I, I don't ascribe much meaning or significance to the title of journalist in the first place. I mean, you, plenty of people who are total idiots and who do a poor job could conceivably get accredited and probably should. Like, I'm not going to say that somebody should be excluded purposely from some event because I don't personally find them to be uh, good journalists or because I disagree with them or I find them irritating or whatever. No, I'm saying that it's a joke that she got a press accreditation to this event because she wasn't attending the event under the auspices of any kind of journalistic outfit whatsoever. Rather, Julia McFarlane was there as someone who's being paid by an American PR firm. Okay? Like an outright PR firm. Like they don't try to hide it at all. That's what it is. It's a firm that specializes in, quote, crisis communications and uh, thought leadership for uh, unknown, unknown and unnamed clients. Um, and the, the PR firm, which I mean, this is, and all the information is in the Substack, but you can look at it. The firm was founded by two Obama administration officials, so two White House aides 
they're the ones who founded the firm. And they're not saying, oh, look, we're founding a some kind of journalistic endeavor. No, they're saying it's a, it's a communications outfit. It's a PR firm, okay? And they're the ones who now are employing Julia McFarlane. And not only that, I mean, that alone, would, that, that, that would be weird. That would probably be disqualifying in a sense, but it gets worse somehow. What they pay Julia McFarlane to do is to host a podcast, not on her own, not with another like former journalist who maybe wanted to make a career change, which a lot of journalists do, you know, I, I get it, but with Sir Richard Dearlove, the, uh, the former head of MI6, the British spy agency, the equivalent of CIA for the UK. And Sir Dearlove, or Sir Richard, I guess I should say, he's not just any old bloke. <laughs> Nor is he any, just any old UK spy chief. He actually was in, he was running the agency from 1999 to 2004, during which the notorious quote-unquote dodgy dossier emerged and that dossier was promulgated far and wide to provide a uh, supposed evidentiary basis for weapons of mass destruction claims in Iraq and justify the war in Iraq. And even the official inquiry, the Chilcot inquiry that the UK uh, government authorized years later, um, cast uh, blamed uh, Sir Richard directly for uh, for having been responsible for, for the dissemination of this phony information around weapons of uh, mass destruction. So here's Julia McFarlane saying that like she's this uh, great opponent and. Uh, chronicler of misinformation and giving these uh, dramatic guidances as to who should be followed and who shouldn't in order to minimize the threat of misinformation. And she's literally co-hosting a podcast with a spy chief who was responsible for promulgating the weapons of mass destruction hoax. I mean, this sounds like a joke. This sounds like way too far-fetched for it to possibly be true, but I assure you it is. And it's just sort of mind-blowing. Now, when I meant this in response to Julia, she, of course, didn't and couldn't deny that she does, in fact, work for this PR agency and is doing, you know, this quasi-journalism or quasi-media stuff on their behalf in conjunction with MI6. But she said, oh, look, you know, I, I've uh, had this uh, illustrious career where I worked for ABC and the BBC. And um, and so that, I, th- I guess she thought, gave her the requisite credentials to make these statements about misinformation and who's perpetuating and who's not. Now, again, it just even more sort of just staggering in its amazing quality here. Um, If you look at what she did for ABC News, her biggest, latest contribution from last year 
was she bragged about booking and organizing and also appearing in a, uh, a special, a TV special aired on ABC News featuring Christopher Steele. So it was, this was the, yes, and, and that Christopher Steele, another MI6 former agent that just coincidentally Julia had uh, a working relationship with. She arranged for Christopher Steele to be interviewed by ABC News in this sort of a rehabilitatory fashion where they cast him in the most positive uh, possible light. Notwithstanding, Christopher Steele, of course, being associated with yet another dossi- dodgy dossier <laughs> that also resulted in the promulgation of just a giant tsunami of quote-unquote misinformation, which was the Steele dossier. Which was, you know, the original basis for a huge percentage of the entire Trump-Russia fiasco. So, these are the people that Julia McFarlane is exalting. All the while, she's trying to, you know, have a go at me for being a misinformation agent of some sort because I truthfully reported something that I observed that she wasn't even in a position to witness. <laughs> I mean, it, it, again, it's, it's beyond parody. Like, I don't even know what to call it. And the way that I sort of characterized it in the Substack article was that if you tried to uh, develop a caricature of a journalist with the intention of discrediting the journalism industry. If you came up with Julia McFarlane, it would have been too far-fetched. Like, you would have had to have been reeled back in to come up with something that seemed a little bit more plausible to make your point better. And yet here, she is. I mean, she exists. She's the real deal. And uh, it's it's actually very incredible to me. Um, and so, you know, this was... I had to point out, I had to at least make reference to all this for at least historical uh, posterity. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of interesting how somebody like her actually views, for instance, the fact that she was once included on the Forbes 30 for 30 list. And it wasn't even like the standard Forbes 30 for 30 list in the United States. It was the European version, which I didn't even know existed. But she, you know, she she touts that as one of her big accolades. Still today on her, you know, Twitter bio, she happens to be thirty three at the moment. But uh, she still wants everyone to know that at some point she was the recipient of this great honor of being named a thirty under thirty. Um, by the way, Natasha Bertrand touts the same accolade, and you know that. <laughs> I'm sorry uh, to break it to you, but putting any stock whatsoever in that being some kind of valorous designation is proof positive that you have to be ensconced in a certain kind of just incredibly banal uh, careerist almost you know painfully superficial mindset and you know that apparently that mindset is what gives you a major leg up in the journalism industry. Because, 
you know, Wally McFarlane is not working for her journalism outfit at the moment, I would not be surprised at all if she is able to re-enter the more, quote, bona fide journalism world and be employed by a regular outlet again, should she so please. I mean, maybe she's just getting paid enough now by this PR firm that it suffices for her. Um, but, you know, Julia McFarlane is, is the type of journalist who is going to be presumed to have credibility. I mean, nobody is going to be whispering behind her back at a, you know, a big national security summit that uh, she ought not to be granted accreditation because she's just not serious enough. Or, you know, she doesn't have the right institutional backing or something. You know, she even uh, tried to uh, attack me as just an irrelevant blogger. And I uh, you know, had to note that, okay, if I'm an irrelevant blogger, then I guess I tricked the BBC, who you say is your former employer, because they had to be on their flagship radio broadcast, the BBC World Service, just a pr- few days prior to give a commentary on the NATO summit. And I'm not trying to, like, trumpet stuff I've done or brag. I, I, I really would only comment on this or bring light to it, uh, I thought that it was, again, sort of indicative of wider trends and wider sort of, uh, archetypes that populate the, the media industry. It, she definitely does. Um, she definitely is an archetype of that. Um, and also notable that a press credential to this event and other events and get you know direct access to world leaders and such. I mean, she was organizing all kinds of... She does, you know, she does this podcast with, you know, the MI6 chief, and she was doing podcasts left and right with these major officials. You know, she clearly has, uh, you know, many ways to get these connections. She was talking to, you know, European ministers and everything else. Those scans for her podcast. She has, like, you know, Bob Gates on, you know, John Cipher, that Twitter CIA guy, and all kinds of people. So, um... It just shows you that you can get access, or you could you could portray yourself as the, a, this, a journalist of utmost seriousness, even if you literally are working for a PR outfit. And on top of that, if you're literally working in conjunction with spy chiefs, I mean, I guess it's not an entirely new phenomenon because we all know, or should know anyway, that especially since 2016. You, know, you had the national security state apparatchiks like uh, you know, Brennan and Clapper and all these people, but you know far beyond them, Andrew McCabe, uh, you know Peter Strzok, all these people that they, they've flooded into the at least the TV networks, the cable TV networks, as some sort of of uh, you know some sort of commentators or quasi media personalities. There was even a point at which I recall that the former uh, acting director of the CIA. Michael Morell, who actually was integral in launching the whole Russiagate narrative in 2016 when he wrote a New York Times uh, New York Times op-ed basically alleging some sort of collusive relationship with uh, between Trump and Russia. The first time that had really been, one of the first times anyway, that had been formulated into a, uh, an actual thesis. Uh, soon after that, Mike Morell ended up getting hired by CBS to host a podcast. Host like a, jur- a quasi-journalistic podcast. So this is not a new thing, per se. Um, but, it, to my knowledge, it seems new, 
that uh, a journal, a, a, a purported journalist, who, especially a journalist, is it, uh, especially if they're a journalist who's running around giving sermons about journalistic ethics and who ought to be uh, treated with, you know, uh, deference and respect, and who ought not to be. Um, I, I don't know of, a, of another example of a journalist literally working, again, for a, for a PR outfit, falsely portraying herself as just a standard journalist and, uh, you know, acting like that's just a totally normal and respectable thing. Um, it, it, it kind of indicates to me that she, she truly doesn't have anybody around her or that she's in communication with that has any sense of awareness at all. Otherwise, you'd think someone would eventually have had to point this out to her. Uh, but, you know, I gather that uh, the first time anybody pointed out that this might be a bit of an issue is uh, is me. Um, but anyway, you know, the uh, conceit that I use in my Stubstack article is that uh, I was considering blaming her for giving me COVID because having been in, in her physical proximity, we maybe inhaled the same particles, the same uh, tainted, you know, airflow. And uh, therefore, if I wanted to, I could accuse her of afflicting me with this deadly virus. Um, but I decided that, nah, I might as well just be content with the um, overabundance of other ways in which she provides such uh, comic relief. And, um, you know, in addition to her humorous side, uh, she actually is, again, it's just almost too perfect window into some of these pathologies within the journalism industry that sometimes, I guess, even I may underestimate. I mean, it would have come as a slight surprise to me uh, a month or so ago if you explained what Julia McFarlane is up to at the moment and then said that she would be in this position, not only as an attendee of a major, major summit and kind of presenting herself falsely as a, as a standard journalist, but then also feeling like she had the authority to uh, issue these uh, scolding lectures about who is and who is not a, quote, bona fide journalist. I mean, that sounds just like too much. It sounds, again, like an overly far-fetched uh, caricature that I might kind of... Uh, extremely uncharitably conjure up in my head if I wanted to be extreme. Um, but no, I mean, sometimes the rot really truly runs, does run so deep that the extreme characters rather don't go far enough. Um, so yeah, anyway, uh, take a look at that, that Substack article if you'd like and uh, let's to the callers, shall we? And who's first? Of course. My, my favorite, that would be Eric. You all heard him say it. Favorite. <laughs> my fave, yeah. Thank you. Well, I mean, I, I'd be remiss since you said you're coming uh, to D.C. Um, and, you know, that's where I'm at. Uh, maybe we should uh, have a little meet up. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, maybe, I guess, you know, uh, contact. Send me, send me some. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm going to be busy for the next two days but uh no spoilers we'll see <laughs> yeah it, it, it couldn't be today uh tomorrow or the next day but i don't know who knows i'm a, i'm open-minded 
Oh, and Eric dropped out. And Eric, uh, if you had anything to add other than a random solicitation, um, <laughs> you can you can be next, I guess. But uh, Heidi's up. Hi. Yeah, hey. I just wanted to say hi. Um, <clears throat> I just wanted to say from my point of view, my two cents, I thought there'd be a, a lot more people <laughs> behind me, but, uh, I used to work as a, um, a claim in, a medical claim investigator and not to say that I'm like smart or anything like that, but I had to associate with hospital administrators, lawyers, doctors, you know, basically all the supposed smartest people in the world. Right. And, uh, because of the kind of work I did in the working class, you know, background that I come from, I was shocked at how little common sense a lot of these, you know, supposedly highly intelligent people are or have. And that I just basically wanted to say, you, uh, I don't know what your background is. Honestly, I don't follow any journalists that closely to know that kind of stuff. I, I am a mother. I have two young children. Um, I just touch on these issues here and there when I get notifications, basically. Uh, but basically what I wanted to say is that it's because of journalists like you who actually seem authentic and can actually trigger that, you know, like we can see that you have this common sense, this working class common sense. That's how you're reaching us. And these other, you know, quote unquote, elite journalists, that's why they're losing all their credibility is because we can't relate to the bullshit that they're trying to sell. You know, you guys aren't trying to sell us bullshit. You guys are actually giving us, you know, the the closest approximation to the truth that as far as you can fathom is. And we love you for it. And that was basically all I wanted to say. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks, Heidi. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because on, on the one hand, I'm not sure I would simplify it. You know, I'm, I'm not sure I would simplify it, like the observation I'm making here about journalists or this journalist in particular, broadly speaking, um, into an indictment of their lack of common sense um, because... You know, I'm sure in some just unremarkable everyday scenario, they could probably exhibit something that resembles common sense. Like, it, I could see Julia McFarlane. I mean, having been able to establish these connections with spooks and stuff that she has, I, I guess you might have to have some measure of what could be potentially called common sense in order to just... Uh, have the social skills maybe or the networking skills to to uh, accomplish that so i, I wouldn't want to say based on the, on the limited experience i have with her that she doesn't have common sense i would more frame it as that they're, they they truly are ensconced in this in this bizarre uh, feedback loop of a world where they think that their credentials or their their idea of journalistic propriety or their notion of you know this kind of consensus that they've absorbed consensus thinking that they've absorbed 
that's that's their moral ideal and they they just don't have it's not that they don't have common sense it's that they've never had reason really to cultivate the kind of critical thinking skills that would be required i guess to penetrate some of that and also again because they're such they're so prioritizing sheer careerism um like if you're a great networker like Julia, you're probably gonna be you're probably just a total careerist. And if careerism is your lodestar, um, then that has to come in tandem with a certain kind of kind of almost ideologically careerist mindset. Um, so I don't know if that makes so sense. Just, I, I, yeah, so but, they're just following orders, and they have a self-preservation instinct. Well, no, I mean, I don't know that they're following. I don't think she, I don't know of, a, of an order that she's following. I think she's probably following her no, own no, orders. It's like That's the most disturbing part. Consent. Dude, not following orders per se, but she was yeah. she was uh, uh, basically. Um, uh, what's the word for it? She, she was made to be this way. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she's so she's she was chosen. It's more it's more insidious because she's. <laughs> following her own order you know if she was just yeah. if she was literally i know you didn't mean this mean it this in a literal way but if she literally was just receiving an order and then like begrudgingly following it that would actually be way more defensible but she's she's not um and then in, in terms of my There's own no class telling how they think though sometimes too. yeah and then in terms okay. of my own uh, class background which is another interesting kind of element here that you bring up um I, you know i wouldn't want to uh, Kind of maybe glamorize myself or or uh, valorize myself as having I think what you called a working class common sense. Um, mm-hmm. You know I don't I, I'm not I don't think I did really come from a particularly working class background. I'd say middle to upper up, upper middle class potentially. Um, you know comfortable childhood. I'm I'm not going to pretend that you know I uh, had to scrape by or that. You know, I, uh, you know, I had had a some sort of the, difficult economically childhood. Lost, yeah, yeah. You haven't lost touch. That's the difference. Yeah. There, you know, there's a certain level of celebrity, I think, and elitism or whatever, where the people actually lose touch. They don't want to know. And yeah. to me, it seems like you want to see it from that point of view, or you want to give the truth yeah. to those people. You know, Is I. That I fair? Yeah, yeah, no, that's that, that's that's fair. I, I think you know, but but from the class angle, which I've thought about in the past um, a lot actually, and, and talked with others about it, I think there's something about particularly the feeder system that's been a, a set up in the U.S. and I guess to some extent the U.K. where I think Julia McFarlane is from, but it doesn't really matter. Um, the, the, the feeder system of elite credentialing in the U.S. by way of univer- colleges and universities, that selects for a certain kind of mindset that probably um, incentivizes conformism and uh, lack of real critical thinking. Um, Another brick in the wall? Thank yeah, you. yeah. Um, gotcha. especially, especially if, especially if you're, you're seeking to above all else, burnish your elite credentials. 
Like if that's your your driving pursuit, then stuff like, you know, following the truth, if you want to put it that way, or, or, you know, following the facts wherever they lead you, or, you know, some of these other, you know, intellectual endeavors, they're going to get subordinated to your, your quest for elite credentialing, which I think is is, uh, something that is a quest that Julia here embodies. Um, I'm not saying that everybody who goes to an elite college or, uh, you know, a, an affluent or selective college is necessarily going to be incapable of formulating critical thoughts or departing from the herd or not getting swept up into a mob mentality or, uh, or, or can't produce good stuff. They will. Yeah. But if they're a careerist, they will. And and, and these places select for careerism, right? Um, You have to be part of like, uh, of like an, uh, I guess like an intellectual minority or something. If, uh, in, in order to to deviate from that, you know, I just and I didn't go to elite colleges. You know, I went to a state school. Um, again, there are plenty of careers at state schools as well. Uh, I just think that th- there has to be something to that uh, how uh, that feeder system credentialing process that helps explain why it is that so many of the people who now populate industries such as media are. Uh, are all sort of beholden to the same dreary, uh, dreary isn't mindset. It, isn't it easy enough to say that it's because it's six companies that hold all the power and all the money and all the resources? I mean, like, this, nah. you're you're an anomaly, and that's why we love you. You know that, right? <laughs> uh, well, thank you. I love you too. Um, you know, I I think obviously there's there is like a superstructure of media ownership that inevitably has some impact on this. But I think that's also, I I think in the case of analyzing specific individuals, that's a bit of a distraction because you can't make a causal connection between somebody working at a corporate news outlet and them feeling like they have to comport with the corporate prerogatives and and that that informs their their and even like julia mcfarlane she doesn't work for a corporate outlet right now she works for some other pr firm firm. that's even worse that's that's privatization even worse but but i'm talking like ben swan and and like uh who is the chick that uh she did the uh she wanted to do the coverage on jeffrey epstein and they caught her, you know, somebody caught her off camera and then they, they posted it on YouTube. I can't remember her name. I wish I did. But they posted it on YouTube and she ended up, uh, she had to apologize. And then she even lost her job a couple months later. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Like, well, I we think all those know, are, I think, we all yeah. see this is the case. And, and, yeah. oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. So I'm sorry. I, I probably interrupted you. I, I think those two were, they were former uh, kind of local uh, TV hosts, weren't they? I mean, so that's a, that's a different world. I mean, that's not. I know a world they were on corporate level, though. I I yeah, know. Yeah. I remember seeing them on on a national broadcast, basically spitting in the eye of the or the the woman didn't. You know, it was actually surreptitiously uh, recorded and then broadcast later, and it, it wasn't her fault. She wanted to do the story on Jeffrey Epstein, but they quashed it, and she was complaining about it, and the cameraman uh, recorded it and then posted it later. I I don't. I, I wish I could remember her name right now, but the point is, is that um, this woman that you're talking about, uh, it's nothing new. 
to basically, yeah. I think, uh, the, your broad audience. That's all I'm saying. And uh, good on you. You know, uh, <laughs> broadcast it. it yep. This is the corruption of of corporate media or PR firms or whatever. This yep. is why we're not getting the truth. But thank you. Yep. Is what I'm saying. All right. Thanks, Heidi. Uh, let's go to Elizabeth. Hello, Michael. Can you hear me? I can, yes. Okay. Uh, I wanted to start by saying I really enjoy your work. Um, I just subscribed to the Substack, and I've been following you for quite some time on Twitter. I probably don't agree a heck of a lot with everything, but I enjoy your perspective, and I I find your writing really really good I mean they're really detailed and uh, but the, the main thing I wanted to ask a question and it's not well thanks by the way that's all that's really all I can ask for not 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 total agreement but you know appreciation of my ability to add something absolutely um, I wanted to ask you a question and I'm not at all being facetious this is totally serious because I'm listening to you know I read the substack about McFarlane and mm-hmm. listening to you and I wonder, do you ever get to the point where you, you question your choice of career path? In other, in other <laughs> words, that journalism thing is just a really sick uh, situation and maybe I should have done something else. Because it must be incredibly frustrating to try to, you know, report on what's really going on and... Uh, it, it goes against the mainstream narrative, and I'll yeah. hang up and listen. Thank you. All right, thanks. You know, uh, funnily enough, even though I have obviously extreme frustration along the lines that you suggest, it's never caused me to question why I chose to enter this industry, if you want to put it that way, or to take this on as a job, because. I never really made a conscious choice to do the job. If that sounds bizarre, I can understand why, but I really didn't. I just kind of fell into it sort of almost unwittingly and then just, I guess it sort of snowballed into the thing that I guess I just, I did. Like it's, it's at no point earlier on in my life did I say to myself, you know what? I'm hereby resolving to uh, become a journalist and to enter the media and to uh, you know make a difference or anything. Um, in fact, you know when I was a kid, it generally had never occurred to me that journalism was something that I even could do or that it could be available for me to do because. At least sort of my, my impression of it back then was that it was, you know, reserved for people who had the correct credential. Um, and I just didn't conceive of myself as somebody who could come to obtain that credential, even though I didn't know exactly what the credential was, you know. Um, you know, but you know, one thing led to another, and I just sort of fell into it. Um, so, no, I don't really ever, you know, bemoan having chosen to do this, again, because I really never made the conscious choice, and I recognize that could sound very strange, but it is true. Also, though, 
I don't know what the alternative would be. Like, <laughs> I don't know what else I would be doing. I mean, and maybe that's to my discredit, but um, I'm not sure I would be particularly good at anything else, or I'm not sure that I wouldn't find mo- like pretty much any other pursuit to be incredibly tedious and, and wearying. Um, and maybe there's something out there. But, um, you know, and it would also be pretty ridiculous for me to complain because, I mean, I'll let you in on a little secret, but basically what I've been able to do uh, is just over time, just monetize the stuff that I like doing anyway. Um, You know, or in other words, that I would probably do for free regardless. (laughs) So, um I think that's a pretty enviable position to be in. Um, so, uh, no, I think it would almost be like uh, a mark of uh, lack of gratitude or something if I uh, started wishing that I hadn't gone down this route of the first sign of adversity or, you know, frustration. Uh, okay, uh, let's go back to Eric, who, uh, I guess, cut himself off before... <laughs> My finger slipped. Yeah, I've done it myself many times. So. Uh, Colin needs to yes. uh, somewhat fix it down. Report that. It's okay. a bug. <laughs> yeah. So, um, crazy question, but because um, I know you sort of are in that universe of podcast, but would you be interested in going on uh, the Adam Freeman show? Um. Yeah, I mean, sure. I don't, I've never listened to the show. I uh, I met him once or twice. Adam I think. Friedland. Yeah, yeah, but um, sure, he's. I'm sure. It's, yeah, I would go on. You know, I I would pretty much go on any show within reason that invites me. I, I was. Uh, <laughs> I went. Uh, I did O A N N this past week, which I guess you could make an argument that doing that is not within reason, but it was actually a fairly reasonable <laughs> segment. Was it it was a just. No, it was just on. Uh, it was just on Ukraine stuff, um, and you know the host was fairly sensible. I thought. You would so, think I mean, the I, debate I don't doubt on OAN and about Ukraine would be people saying, "No, we should support the war because it'll bring about the apocalypse." It's like, no, we shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah. The spectrum, but no, they, they might make that argument about Israel, but. Sure. I mean, well, that's something interesting that Chris Mott said. I think maybe talking with you or somebody else, but, you know, it's great to have. Um, I tried to get on a space with him, but then it, uh, it's, the, the app uh, shorted down on me. But in any case, um, he uh, was saying that. Wait, is the Adam Freeland, is the Adam, I'm sorry, is the Adam Freeland show still uh, come down or is it a different show now? Well, you know, I think you'll find that there are certain continuities. Um, <laughs> oh, so he, so but, he, so he, he broke off. He, they split up. Well, okay. What seems to have happened is that Stavros. Okay, if it was a big, if it was a big dramatic thing. So, okay. Oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. Well, I, you know, I don't want to pry, but you know, it's your universe, you know, because you're part of the extended Red Scare universe. It's just part of the spinoff of Comptown, sort of. Right? <laughs> So I was just wondering if you, <laughs> yeah. if you had any, if you had any interest, or if you were friends with Colin or anything like that. Friends? No, 
Uh, I know of them. I, I don't know that I, I would. I, I would go in the show if I'm. You know. Um, yeah. I don't know what, what else to say. Yes, I would. I mean, are you some sort of uh, emissary where you're trying to broker a, a booking? You know, I think that would be pretty cool if I could start brokering bookings. Um, <laughs> a bookie broker. Uh, a cheeky bookie broker. That, that's what I would be. Yeah. Peaky blinders. <laughs> yeah. But, um, no, and then, okay, I'm going to ask kind of another uh, out, out of the field question. Because I don't know if you've ever been asked this we're about the same age, or a little older than me. But um, what was your what was your nine eleven experience? You mean on the date of nine eleven, or what is my experience that was so you know? Yeah, uh, on the day, life the day, altering uh, that it, it's what, it's 13? akin to nine eleven. Uh, on nine eleven, yeah, I was thirteen. Um, yeah, but that's uh, that, that is out of left field as a question because there's it's not like it's not like we're marking the anniversary today or something. It's just a random day in July. But yeah. um, but I, I still have a vivid recollection of it. Obviously, you know, I was in uh, I went to school and was in eighth grade in, in Essex County, New Jersey, and you know, I just remember kids whose parents worked in lower Manhattan being called into the prison because you know it was it's uh, you know half hour or less 20 minutes from from New York City and uh, so obviously lots of parents commuted in um, and so I just remember lots of kids being called into the principal's office you know and obviously being upset and having to be consoled. Um, I don't think I don't actually think anyone anyone's parents from my school actually died, but you know they were obviously concerned about it. And um, I uh, you know, I remember the following day being annoyed because oh, and you know what I was I was in Spanish class. Okay, so when the there was an announcement made by the principal over the loudspeaker that planes had hit the World Trade Center. It was over, like, the loudspeaker, like, where they would make the daily announcements. They made it over the loudspeaker. And for some reason, I have a... still have an image in my head of a particular kid in the class. Like, looking really... Giving this excited, almost mis- mischievous look when it was announced, like it was cool. Um... I'm not making a commentary one way or another on the fact that this kid made that face. I just happened to have that face in my memory. Um, Actually, I remember at, on the day, because I was in fifth grade, but I remember the day people talked about how, like, oh, yeah, there were people saying, wow, it looks cool because it's like from a movie. But, you know, we're well, we about hadn't it. seen we hadn't seen the footage yet. I mean, it's not like they were playing the TV or anything for us. Well, because some we people, had, they just, did we just that. They pulled the TV right in and yeah. made you watch. It's like, why? No, yeah, no, yeah. I mean, for, for me, I, that, that wasn't the case. It was just announced over the loudspeaker. Um, and then, you know, I, and I think I've actually mentioned this. I mentioned this before. On, um, I think I'm going to have done a tweet on this, actually. But uh, when I went... Outside, because outside to get picked up to go home for the day, my dad was there to pick me up, and that's when I knew that it was really serious. Because 
Like my dad would never pick, have picked me up from school. I don't think there had, my dad had ever picked me up from school before, but that day he was there to pick me up. So, you know, that's what I knew. That's, that, that was when I really knew like to my bones that 9-11 was serious, which is sort of funny. Um, and, you know, he's, the first thing he said to me was uh, where we've been attacked. I was like, oh, okay, you know, explain. Uh, so I just remember going home and then, you know, watching TV and we watched the uh, uh, World Trade Center 7 fall. Um, and then you know, the following day, uh, oh, another thing on, the, on, the, on 9-11 itself, I remember hearing we have the whole I was in English class so it's slightly later in the day and we all heard a giant jet fly over my son who knows what could happen um, and I just remember the, the following day being annoyed when teachers people were trying to insist that, oh, you know, we're just going to do this, the planned schedule and, you know, they, they were pretending like it didn't happen and that they were just, they just like, because they were serious teachers, they were just going to do business as normal. I just remember being, being annoyed and I just didn't pay attention to them and I was trying to draw out, I still remember, like, drawing out diagrams, like, on scrap paper of like where the planes took off from and what route they took and where they crashed and everything else. Um, so yeah, I mean, I remember my uh, my English teacher played it the following day. Played us. Uh, uh, I mean, it wasn't the following day, but it was a couple days later because uh, Paul Simon was on Saturday Night Live, whatever the like that Saturday. And so I guess it must have been the following week, right? And she. Uh, She played for us uh, the boxer, and we had I mean, the Paul Simon song. Cause I guess he played that on Saturday Night Live. We had to like analyze it in reference to 9/11, and I don't know this and that. That's just, those are just some uh, recollections. I don't know if that's. Uh, Thanks. That's yeah. very interesting. I mean, yeah. I'm always curious because you know it's a marker, um, especially with age. You know, and um, I think. Something's got to be talked about, especially because I don't know if you feel. I want to make maybe a related point. I'm kind of meandering here, but like, you know how people are very mad. They're very mad about. Um, they're very mad at Alex Jones because you know people will say, "Oh, he got Sandy Hook wrong," and it was like, "Well, hold on, you had this horrible tragedy, and he wasn't just like getting it wrong, like you know, oopsie daisies. He was kind of doing a really crazy sort of thing." way that he was getting it wrong and purposefully but like you know even with Sandy Hook yeah yeah it's but it's just the way that the disinformation warfare has worked around this so-called denial of tragic events or you know the way that I mean 9-11 has ushered in this new era of um, you know militarizing the whole uh, information you know whatever you call this I don't know I think about it it's funny because it's like with these tragic events you know saying that Bush knocked over the towers and stuff, and um, whether, I mean, I don't know, I think about the future having to debate more and more about that, because I kind of feel like, well, if we could focus on the Saudi, it makes sense, but, like, you know, if, uh, it's this weird thing, but it's, 
like well that was how alex jones gained prominence he would be like a troll and they would show up and scream over a bullhorn 9-11 was an inside job 9-11 was an inside job he like disrupted events screaming that um and his you know acolytes his acolytes were kind of uh coded as slightly or as like vaguely ambiguously left-wing around that time because he was such a uh, ardent proponent of, of the 9-11 inside job theory and that was more that was like you know, a, a, a bizarre, if you look at it in hindsight, a bizarre percentage of just Democrats believe that it was an inside job eventually. Um, so Alex Jones kind of, uh, you know, to the extent that he was known in the mainstream, which he really wasn't at all for a long, for a very long time, but to the extent that he was, uh, he, he kind of vaguely appeared maybe more left-wing than right-wing even for a time um, and you know as to Sa- Sandy Hook you know I, I think I might have mentioned this on call before but if I didn't I uh, you know, I personally w- went to a funeral an open casket funeral for one of the first graders who was killed in Sandy Hook so I actually saw the body and uh, so uh, on, on that basis I uh kind of was able to reject the crisis actor theory um you know I I think the thing with Alex Jones is uh, I mean of of course he's peddled just I mean I used to listen to him fairly regularly because I wanted to understand you know where it's coming from I wrote a big article on him and his movement uh in 2012 when that was still a somewhat novel thing to do uh, meaning he hadn't been profiled to death already, and like you had to have like a, a bit more of a niche uh, knowledge to be acquainted with him. And so I went to the uh, I went to a builder I went to the Bilderberg meeting in 2012. Um, you know the exterior of it where he was like leading a big pro- uh, protest. He called it Occupy Bilderberg because he was trying to seize upon the yeah, momentum from the Occupy movement from the previous uh, fall. Uh, now hold um, on. Uh, you you you're saying this. I'm I'm I didn't know whether or not you've even been on Infowars yourself or talked to. Him. I talked to him that one time. Yeah, I talked. I, I wasn't on Infowars as a guest, but uh, I t- I interviewed him and talked to him. And I guess I was you know on a broadcast at that uh, Bilderberg you know protest event. Um, but yeah, no, I know I have. I spoke to him. And you've never been him. on Joe Rogan, right? No, I haven't. No. I've had people lobby for me to go on, but not to my knowledge. Has there been any momentum on that? That's very neat because I just think about, you know, to bring it back to Julian McFarland or whatever, part of this whole folk warfare is, you know, there's the underlying belief that, like, you have to, the, the government needs to step in when it comes to lying about tragic events. Just, if we did that, you have to see so much of, I mean, you know, freedom of thought, of, of you know, trying to discern the world around you and history and life, and, you know. <laughs> so it's just, I, yeah. I think it's great to really have to think about the 
see that you even you even see that you've done a little bit with Ukraine. Like if you even want to reserve like judgment. Yeah, I mean, if you even want to, if you simply want to reserve judgment about the facts of an incident before uh, you know, ver- a verified facts come in, like independently corroborated and verified facts come in. Like if you even want to just preserve a somewhat rational evidentiary uh, standard for uh, processing claims, then you could be accused of exactly what you just said there, like that you're, you're denying a tragic event or you're a genocide denier. And, um, you know, there's some of these, these Baltic states have actually criminalized that kind of, quote, denial, you know, as, uh, as an extremely grave offense. Maybe I'm, I hope I'm remembering this correctly, but I think one of the Baltic states, maybe Lithuania, Latvia, I forget exactly, even have some sort of penalty where citizenship can be stripped of someone who the what this new legislation that was passed around you know speech codes involving the Ukraine war um, so yeah but even in a, in a less formal sense and in, in, in other countries like in the US yeah I, mean, I was I, mean, I did the call on this you know a couple months ago but I was accused of um Spreading, uh, basically, geno- being a genocide denier in uh, foreign policy magazine, based on just a total, based on not even a quote of mine that was cited, but just on a paraphrase, like a, a tendentious paraphrase of like a, a like a, a congl- agglomeration of stuff that I had said, and then the only quote that was used for me was a quote of literally one word. Um, and then they didn't even ask me to comment ahead of time or give a reply. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, the, 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 the logic that's used to prohibit, you know, so-called, so-called fringe views, even the, and some views are genuinely fringe or particularly kooky, like, you know, denying that Sandy Hook was a real thing. Um, the logic that would have to be used to prohibit that could then be used to prohibit basically contestation of live political controversies, such as yeah. around you know, war, you know wars and whatever. It opens else. all of us up, you know, as individuals to like you know we should have we should submit to some other body to just double check that we don't have some. So, you know what, you know how liberals, you know, not to, to use the term liberal pejoratively, but you know how liberals exist, they, they'll say, oh, so wait, are you one of those people who believes in X? Oh, well, now I know to disregard every other thing that you say. It's like, that, that, yeah. I think it's clever, right? It's a stereotyping mechanism or something. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would love, I mean, I would love if they, I mean, what if they use that for... Everybody who believed in the weapons of mass destruction case prior to the Iraq war. I mean, really, because 
like if they said, oh, you're a believer in that, therefore I know what to believe about, the, the, therefore I know to disregard everything else you say, no, 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 no. Um, you know, that, that actually might be legitimate because it would be, it's such a grave indictment of the person's judgment that it, it probably ought to taint everything else they say subsequently. But of course, that logic never gets used for those people. And even though it's, you know, we're coming on 20 years later, you know, it's not been long enough that the people who were the most central to that have uh, retired or uh, become less influential. I mean, I was just listening to the... Um, some of these uh, public discussions that were held for the Aspen Security Forum, which is this annual gathering of, uh, you know, NATSEC apparatchiks and spooks and some, you know, like-minded journalists in uh, Aspen, Colorado. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, one of the people of that, of course, I, I think, and I think you know, the, the Atlantic Magazine somehow endorses this or co-sponsors it uh, because, you know, naturally Jeffrey Goldberg was there and he was the one who was chosen to do a uh, friendly onstage interview with Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, and obviously is in an extremely influential role at the moment because of the uh, major national security slash foreign policy issues that are ongoing. And I'll even have to list them off right now. And uh, it was the it was, you know, it was a, as you might imagine, an incredibly light, friendly interview. They clearly were, uh, you know, at the very minimum, friendly acquaintances prior, friendly acquaintances prior to this. Jeffrey Goldberg is the editor in chief of the Atlantic, which is basically the in-house organ of the center-left, center-right. I guess you could say elite. the Atlanticists. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um. And uh, Jake Sullivan had uh, had apparently written for The Atlantic a couple years ago. And I don't know if he dealt directly with Jeffrey Goldberg, but they sure gave that impression. But anyway, you know, Jeffrey Goldberg was one of the... I, I mean, uh, it's almost tedious to have to rehearse them because it's been said many times, not by, just by me, but others. I mean, Jeffrey Goldberg was one of the absolute worst offenders in the run-up to the Iraq War. He was the one who popularized the theory that... Saddam was in league with Al-Qaeda and that J Dick Cheney went on TV uh, to cite as, you know, the, one of the, the, the most very frightening and maybe even uh, persuasive justifications for the Iraq War. That was largely the work of Jeffrey Goldberg when he was at the New Yorker. Um, and he's never like repented for that, really. Uh, all he's been done is been afforded with more and more opportunities, accolades, and showered with praise, and uh, ascended to higher and higher uh, heights of the industry. The Atlantic poached Jeffrey Goldberg from the New Yorker ap after the uh, Saddam Al Qaeda story collapsed by a. Uh, by purchasing his children a pony. I'm not kidding. Um, Glenn Greenwald covered this at the time at uh, his old you know, salon blog. Um, so, I mean, I, I guess, you know, just to step back, 
Yeah, some Alex Jones, of course, has promulgated crazy theories, and I guess in a technical sense, they could be character, they could be labeled misinformation. But I almost don't, I almost just reflexively don't trust the application of that label because I know how intrinsically selective it is, and how it's kind of like just uh, specially geared toward absolving elites who have been complicit in the worst kinds of quote misinformation such as Jeffrey Goldberg who is still in in the uh, you know commanding heights of the media industry despite his uh, you know the, the the destruction that he helped uh, reek 20 years ago yeah, you know, David Frum, you know, I believe his yeah. his apology went something like, um, you know, when I, when we wanted to give um, Iraq a chance for a better future, you know, I should have realized that I was under the misimpression that Iraq was a real country um, where people sat at desks and did their jobs. So for that, I'm sorry. Like, I'm, I'm barely paraphrasing that. that was his yeah. <laughs> the closest he's come, bless his heart. <laughs> Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I I know. From has disgusted at, at length, but I, I don't think. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think he's ever come out and admitted that it was he was wrong to have advocated for it at the time. I think you know he he has a whole litany of other you know putative self criticisms, but I don't think he's actually conceded the core wrong that he's accused of have committing. Maybe he has I'm not. I mean, even McCain apparently did on his deathbed. So, uh, you know, everybody's on the act. But um, anyway, even if he did, even, but even if he, they, he did put out an apology, I mean, I don't think Alex Jones apologizing for the Sandy Hook stuff is going to be sufficient to rehabilitate him. Well, it, it does. It does raise questions, though, about what his state of mind really is. Like, you know, because is it that he like you know, does he really not get it, or does he get it but he's just really Alex Jones. Well, I mean, so for example, like I get, I get that, like I really hate this, like you know, to do by association, like especially this this current generation, they seem to think. Wow, it's actually really easy to find people just use their associations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, it's like a, or but, not only that, not only that. I mean, it's one thing to to be to, for someone to try to tarnish you with guilt by association, but sometimes they'll just like fabricate associations. Like I've I've been attacked for years now on a guilt by association basis with my claimed associates being people who reply or follow me or interact with me uh, interact with me on Twitter like that that's 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 been uh, that I've accused that those people have been accused of being associates of mine and therefore I was somehow uh, you know tarnished by by that association so I mean it'd be one thing I mean guilt by association but guilt by association would be fallacious regardless but i think what is actually new over the past couple of years is how uh, 
tenuously an association can be asserted to exist. Well, you know, the most basic thing is if, uh, you know, some you interview someone. Uh, uh, right, really, yeah. Really irritates me. Uh, here's another crazy question. Uh, uh, maybe not that crazy, but have you been keeping up with this guy, Andrew Tate? Um, no, He's this, so. like, MMA guy who's been, like, podcasting and taking things by storm. And he might be, he might come off as a bit of, like, a incel, or not an incel, but a, a men's rights guy or whatever. But a point he did make was, like, you know what, he's not beholden to anyone because he's got a million dollars. Whereas, you know, if you, 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 you're beholden to your audience in some way, right? You know, uh, I don't know. Have you ever, have you ever felt that way? Like that, you know? Because you, you, I see the difference between you and Alex Jones is like, you know, I really think, I don't see putting up this mask, right? <laughs> and I'm like, what is going on with Alex Jones? You know what I mean? But, um, I don't know why, why we're talking so much about Alex Jones. Yeah. I don't know. And well, then I mean, it's probably because, like, uh, Glenn Greenwald did interview Because I think she might believe, like, she, I think she believes, like, oh, I'm cultivating a source, you know? Like this, the this her CIA yeah. to use her. <laughs> well, I mean, and she may have been able to cultivate some sources with whatever method she she's used. I mean, I don't discount that possibility of that. Um, but you know, you can cultivate a source and then just use the and then just allow yourself to be a vehicle for whatever the source wants to say. And I think in the case of like of a Julia, and this is speculation, I grant, but you know, if you've somehow, you know, uh, you know, developed a relationship with some spy chief, you're probably going to be somewhat enamored of them and impressed by them. And so you're, so you're not using really your proximity to them and your relationship with them as a source to, do anything of utility you're just you're just allowing them to basically to amplify themselves um you know as far as me being beholden to my audience uh, you, you know I, I i try i mean i i i can't perfectly it would be impossible for me to perfectly insulate myself from that uh from that uh, temptation or from that kind of distorting influence. Um, but to the best of my ability, I don't. I mean, I don't consciously do anything or say anything or produce anything as a function of my being, feeling like I'm beholden to an audience. I, I really don't. Um, maybe there could be subconscious ways in which I'm beholden. I mean, again, I, I can't fully deny that, but, um, I at least try to be cognizant of this idea of, uh, audience capture, you know, or, uh, where, I mean, you'll notice that there are people, you know, including some YouTubers or whoever else where it really just does seem like they do nothing but, uh, tell the audience exactly what they want to hear um, because you know they're, 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 they're directly dependent on you know subscriber numbers or whatever uh, 
And you know, one thing I tried to, and that's like a that's like a peril of the subscriber model to begin with. Um, so it's not just YouTubers; it could be you know anybody, uh, any model. Um, you know, so I have ta- you know I've I've done different kinds of crowdfunding type arrangements for for years now. But what I've always really tried to what I've always done really is try not to pay attention at all to who is subscribing to me, like meaning who's giving money and uh, or whatever, uh, because I, I feel like that could be a bit perilous to know exactly who it is who's a you know paid subscriber at any given time. Um, because then I might develop a subconscious uh, inclination to to cater toward them. Um, so, you know, am I beholden uh, to the audience? I mean, I guess in a in a way. Uh, but I guess when you have, I guess the the, the good thing is, uh, I I think there are uh, safeguards you can. Maybe imperfectly uh, institute that can at least minimize the uh, your susceptibility to that uh, you know bias, if you want to call it that. Oh yeah, you know. Well, I think it's you know. I think it's like, do you really need to have such an independence? It's nice to cultivate. Will be back in but it was just something I was thinking about, just this idea of that of, uh, I don't know, what is, the, what is the real freedom of speech, you know, in the real world of 2022, freedom of information, you know, um, what, what is the real equivalent, and, you know, what would, what really, what would the founders think, how would you update things these days of, like, you know, the, what they would have thought, because, you know, I'm going to confess something, you know, this past July 4th, I was really racking my brain what were the really bad things that we watched in the comments? Like the really bad things, you know? A lot of it was like, you know, like stamp act or censorship or something. I don't know, I was just thinking about it. It was like thinking, uh, you know, this, especially with the ethos in America, you know, recognizing the past wrongs and stuff, most of the time. Was, was, the, was, the, was the British Empire really so bad in terms of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, those are I have I have I read uh, perhaps contrarian cases uh, in favor of the British Empire. Uh, there's one in Helen Andrews' book um, on boomers. She's actually a good good book, very well written. From uh, last year, I, rev- I uh, interviewed her on my Substack from uh, last uh, April, um, and she did make that case. But yeah, anyway. Well, of course, any British or Canadian person would make the case, I suppose. But I guess I might thought was, you know, maybe if I'm too jaded, and, you know, the whole freedom of speech thing, freedom of expression, freedom of religion, you know, people these days, they think, well, you know, actually, we find out, we find out that disinformation can have harmful real-world consequences. Like, you know what, lady, I mean, people believe that, you know, when people believe that the wrong information is going to get you sent to eternal hellfire, such as, like, if you used a printing press to print off a Gutenberg Bible, you know, that the government should come in and, you know, kill you, or, you know, I'm talking about, like, in the 1600s, you know, all of that leading up to, you know, uh, 
uh, freedom of religion it means, yeah, it means that you can have a, a, a country where different religious groups you can't say that you have to censor one religious group because of the real world harm of, you know, um, you have to accept the pluralistic notion of like, you know, other people are going to have to put opinions and that the hell. But so, I don't know, I really think, you, you, oh, I'm going to, yeah, let me because you saw what Chomsky said, right, um, uh, about how this is like, you know, worse than post-Stalinist Russia, you know? Yeah, I saw, I saw him, uh, him being, being pilloried for that. I'm, I mean, oh, well, I think he's right. I'm not sure. Uh, um, I shouldn't, because I'm not an expert. I think there's a way in which he's right. I, I think the trend he probably would have been. Well, I mean, I think it probably would have. Been, I mean, at least in the clip that I saw that was going around, I think it probably would have been better if he had cited more. Uh, if he had cited better examples of what he was talking about, because I mean, you can. You can go to the website of RT in the United States right now. I mean, it's it's, uh, it's not like the entire the entire output of any Russian media, even Russian state media, has been totally uh, censored. Well, and certainly, um, I mean, I think I think in a more I think in a, in a in a broader sense, he's he's true about like the, I mean, he's right about the you know the uh, the thrust. Of this of the censorship climate. Yeah, I don't but, know if um, he's talking about Dave Chappelle. Or... <laughs> no. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think I'm going to leave it there. I'm still on the road, but all things must pass, including this call-in session. So we will uh, reconvene into course as always. And thanks for tuning in. Bye-bye, everybody.